Hi, I'm Alyssa Milano, and this is Sorry Not Sorry. It's been almost four years since Me Too galvanized into an international movement built on the amazing work of Tarana Burke and, honestly, the pain and power of survivors of sexual abuse and harassment. Me Too continues to fundamentally reshape culture, government, and industry. However, the laws still lag behind. Continuing a power structure that supports abusers and suppresses people who have been abused. To discuss, I've invited Deborah Turkheimer, attorney, law professor, and author of the new book, Credible, Why We Doubt Accusers and Protect Abusers. I know E. Jean Carroll accused Trump of raping her back in the 90s, and she kept the dress she wore the day of the alleged attack. Oh, yeah. She's asking for a sample of Trump's DNA for her case. They have no witnesses. There's nobody around. They just come out. Some are doing it for probably a little fame. They get some free fame. It's a total setup. I am here today not because I want to be. I am terrified. I am here because I believe it is my civic duty to tell you what happened to me while Brett Kavanaugh and I were in high school. I believed he was going to rape me. I do not believe that Brett Kavanaugh was her assailant. So I do believe that she was assaulted. I don't know by whom, and I'm not certain when. Hi, I'm Deborah Turkheimer, the author of Credible, Why We Doubt Accusers and Protect Abusers. I'm working to transform the way we respond to sexual assault, sexual harassment, and the full spectrum of gender violation. Sorry, not sorry. So I just want to dive right in because we have so much to talk about. The credibility complex. The credibility complex is a cluster of forces that undermine our judgments about credibility. And they lead us askew in two directions. They cause us to discount the credibility of accusers, especially accusers who are most marginalized, and also to inflate the credibility of men accused, especially those who are most powerful, men who occupy positions of authority. And so the credibility complex is driven by culture, it's driven by law, and it affects all of us. I think the first thing that comes to mind is how did we get to this point? What shaped our legal system and the other structures that orbit that system like police to lend credibility to abusers instead of the people who have been abused? Yeah. And so the credibility complex has been around forever. It's deeply ingrained in the fabric of our society. And one way to think about why is the notion of patriarchy, which has also been around forever and endures to this day. These are deeply baked in structures that continue to influence all of us. And we have a powerful attraction to maintaining the status quo. That's true, whether we have power within the system or we don't. We 
all in some way, I think, are drawn to preserving the familiar and not to destabilizing our lives in really fundamental ways. And so it's really not a surprise that we've lived in this patriarchal society for these many hundreds of years and that still today, these vestiges remain. It's going to be really hard to change that. Yeah. And I also think that without recognition that it exists, we can fall prey to continuing to nurture and cultivate this cycle that's really hurtful. You mentioned in the book that the law used to include a corroboration requirement for women who came forward with abuse allegations. Does that still exist? And how does it influence law today? And why is it so harmful? So it used to be the law across the board, this corroboration requirement that was unique to sexual assault cases. So in no other case was it true that the word of a victim or an alleged victim wouldn't be enough, right? The corroboration requirement says that's not enough. You need something more even to get the case to a jury. And so we see that enduring in some states as a formal matter. But I think even more to the point, we see that informally. We see that corroboration requirement inside courts of law and certainly outside courts of law in this demand for more proof, more evidence, something more than her word, such as it is. In the beginning of the interview, you mentioned cluster of forces. Let's name those forces. I'm going to say culture which is our communal system of meaning. And and certainly there are cultures and subcultures within that culture. It's fragmented, but there are some collective values, some shared understandings. We have a culture and culture is one of the forces driving the credibility complex. The other main force is the law. And when I talk about the law, criminal law, civil law, rules of evidence, I mean law enforcement and how we enforce these laws. And thinking about the law of rape, but also laws against discrimination that govern sexual harassment. I was advised that a lot of things about me would be brought up in court that I might not necessarily want people to know. That they'd bring up sexual history, they'd speak to my friends, they'd speak to my family, they'd get photos of me on Facebook and even perhaps analyse what I was wearing in certain situations. And so all of these laws together drive the credibility complex. And then the third would be people, individual people who are subjected to the biases that we see in culture and in law. And these forces of culture and law imprint themselves on all of us, no matter how well-intentioned we are, no matter how much we think we're learning the lessons of the Me Too era, we're still affected and we're shaped by all of these forces. They're powerful. When we think about just people contributing to this, I think we automatically go to men. But I also think that women can help continue this cyclical power structure. And that's the hardest thing for me to get my my head around is how we have this opportunity. The window is open a little bit to not only change culturally how we look at these crimes, but also just within the law and how we choose to write policy around it, it feels like we should be further along than we are now. And I know you, you talked a little bit about this, but I really want you to go in depth so my audience really understands how else does the law work to boost the credibility of abusers and hurt the credibility of accusers? 
I want to, I guess, talk separately about the criminal law and the civil law, because they both types of law do this credibility discounting and this credibility boosting, but in different ways. So let's start with the law of sexual harassment, which is mostly governed by Title VII, a federal statute. And there are a couple of really important ways in which we see discounting of accusers. So one is that the kind of sexual harassment that rises to the level where it will be recognized by the law is severe or pervasive. That is a really high standard. And what it means that is that when women or men come forward with allegations of harassment, that to the two of us and to I think most of your listeners would seem outrageous and would seem egregious and would seem far beyond what anyone should tolerate in the workplace. There's case after case, judicial opinion after judicial opinion, holding that this harassment does not rise to that legal standard of severe or pervasive. Which is why we're all fighting to have the Equal Rights Amendment put in the Constitution. Yeah, I mean, this is just one of many examples where injury and suffering that is gendered, that is mostly borne by women, just doesn't count. It's just not what the law deems important. And that's a form of credibility discounting, right? That's the kind of credibility discounting that is a disregard, the indifference. It's not, I don't believe this happened, but I don't believe it matters. So that's one example in law. Another example is, we'll stick with sexual harassment law, is blame shifting. And so this law of sexual harassment is a law that looks to whether the victim demonstrated that the harassment was unwelcome. Okay. And so I'll say that again. The presumption is not that harassment is unwelcome. The victim has to show that it's unwelcome. Otherwise, it's deemed welcome and it's tolerated. It's allowed. And so this is a really nice example of the ways that one of the ways in which the law shifts blame, shifts the responsibility to the victim to fend off her abuser and to make clear in every sort of way that she doesn't want to be harassed. Well, that's the wrong presumption. That's not what the law should build in. And I just want to mention to our listeners that when you think about the hashtag Believe Women, it is that we are asking that the baseline is not that the accuser has more power. It is taking back that power that the accuser has that power, that we don't go to, well, you have to prove that this happened. And we do go to a place of, you know what, I'm going to believe this and we're going to go from there. And it's such a, an important distinction. And I think a lot of people don't get it. And I think when that hashtag came out, you know, a lot of these hashtags are completely void of nuance. And when that hashtag came out in particular, I think it is often used and by women as well as a weapon against the movement. Can you tell us some of the ways claims of abuse are discounted? 
So I want to say that claims of abuse are discounted almost across the board when women come forward and say that they were assaulted or harassed. And that is the foundation, right? That is how we've been functioning in society for eons. Absolutely. And I think about a claim of sexual abuse, be it harassment or assault, as really involving three separate claims. We can break it down. When someone comes forward, she says, this happened. He's to blame. And it matters. And when any one of those claims is dismissed or disbelieved, the whole thing goes nowhere. Laurel says she was raped that night inside her D.C. apartment. She went to police. She went to the hospital. Nurses collected evidence from her body to put in what's called a rape kit to test for DNA. That day was probably like the lowest day of my life. Then she waited and waited for justice that never came. And they said, you know, after reviewing your case, we're not going to proceed. And I lost it. I would just like the tears were just, you know, I'm just like flooding and. I just asked the U.S. attorney, I I, I said, what will it take then? The claim goes nowhere. And all of those ways of discounting credibility are, are, are fundamental betrayals. And they're so harmful to the accuser. And I hear this over and over again in my conversations with the women I spoke to for the book and then in my years of working with survivors. This idea that just because someone believes that it happened, that doesn't mean that they're going to blame him. They may well blame me. And even if I'm believed that it happened, I'm just not sure anyone's going to think it's important enough to do anything about it. This is all credibility discounting, Alyssa. And yes, thank you for the reminder to uh, use the word survivor instead of victim. I think it's really important. And sometimes I need reminders of the right words to say. So thank you. What effects does bias toward disbelief, what effects does that have on survivors? And what about on society as a whole? I I want to answer that question, but I'll just say in the book, I do use victim and survivor interchangeably because I think people identify in both ways. And I think it's really fluid the way many survivors or victims identify. And so one day someone might feel more like a victim than a survivor and vice mm. versa. Mm. The effects of this kind of credibility discounting, the bias disbelief are devastating. They're devastating. Over and over again, I've heard and researchers hear that this can be as bad as or even worse than the abuse itself. That is true. And it's more scarring. Yes, because when your community, let's take your loved ones who you trust, and those people, those people who you turn to because you think they're going to help and you think they're going to validate and they do the opposite, that feels like such a powerful betrayal. And when an institution does it to you, maybe your school, your college, or your workplace, where you thought you were a member of the community and you were valued, the opposite message is conveyed. And that, again, is just devastating. And so there are ways in which we have this power to help survivors, to help victims heal. And we can also do exactly the opposite. And we can set back that journey in profound, in profound ways. 
And it really is, it does become about the institution if it happens in that kind of environment. Because I remember, you know, with one of my sexual abuses in my life, I've had quite a few, but one of them actually uh, happened on set. And because of the lack of support that I felt from not only the creatives that I was working with, but also the larger institution of, you know, the production company, the studio, the you name it. And then just the entertainment industry at large and not feeling that justice would be served if I came forward with this accusation of abuse. That's the thing that fucked me up, I think, more than even being abused in the moment. Obviously, that was horrid. But to not have any justice, even in the institution that I work in, was gut-wrenching. It was awful. You also write that we assign unearned credibility to powerful men. And that is certainly the case in my industry. Why do we do that? Why? And what are some of the ways that we see that happen? Powerful men occupy this position of privilege and authority. And with that position um, comes the ability to speak about their lives in ways that we credit. I'm not questioning that Dr. Ford may have been sexually assaulted by some person in some place at some time. But I have never done this to her or to anyone. That's not who I am. It is not who I was. I am innocent of this charge. This has destroyed my family and my good name. We credit their version of reality We care deeply about their well-being. (laughs) We are loath to impose consequences that will take them off course, so to speak, in any way, right? Because we see them as entitled to that position. And, And this gets us back to the notion that to destabilize this is unsettling. It's really unsettling. It's rethinking not just what we believe, but who is granted the authority, the power to speak about their lives in ways that that matter. And so we see this across the board, as you've described in your industry, we see this in really every industry, in every workplace setting, that men, particularly men who are more powerful in our societal structure, they get to say what happened. They get to say that the victim is to blame for whatever happened, maybe she tempted him. Maybe she drank too much. Maybe she didn't fight back hard enough. Maybe she was wearing something too provocative. Absolutely. And a chapter in the book that talks a lot about, I'm going to put this in, in air quotes for your listeners, sexy dress and the ways in which women are held responsible for dressing in ways that are just too inviting. And women are, are charged with controlling the sexual urges of men. And again, powerful men aren't held responsible for this. Really let them off the hook. Is it fair to say that feminism requires a radical reconstruction of society? Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's such entrenched entitlement, male sexual entitlement, other forms of entitlement. And to upend that absolutely requires a very ambitious project. And that's, I think, what feminism aims to do. 
Can you think of one modern society that has achieved feminism? I can't. I can think of societies that are closer. I, you know, certainly when you look at various objective measures of equality, for instance, in the workplace, some of the Scandinavian countries are doing a lot better than we are. But I think we don't yet have the feminist utopia to look at. One of the things that I've noticed and which you write about is that the law is not equipped to deal with the realities of trauma. And that might be delayed reporting or inability to remember specific details, things like that. And that this makes it very hard for people who have experienced the trauma of sexual assault or harassment to receive justice. How the fuck do we fix that? I would like to think that people who want to do better can learn, can educate themselves, can integrate the insights of neuroscience, right? This is, this is what we're talking about here. Neuroscientists know a lot about how our memories work and how we process trauma and how we encode and store and retrieve traumatic memories. There's no reason why someone who's open to learning and open to being educated about this can't better understand that, for instance, a nonlinear narrative on the part of someone who says she was sexually assaulted doesn't mean she's lying. There are really good reasons to believe that someone who was traumatized would not be able to sort of tell the story from A to Z with all details in between, that the central details would be remembered and the peripheral details wouldn't. So part of the, I think the point of the book and part of why I wrote it is because I have some hope, some faith that people who want to do better can do better. One of the things that I hate most about where we are as a culture is how just people of bad faith weaponize trauma and use this their their own disbelief of one accuser to discredit all accusers. I think we all remember what happened with Dr. Blasey Ford when she accused Brett Kavanaugh of sexual assault. And she really told a clear, credible and, and compelling story of sexual assault. It was nearly 40 years old at the time she told it. And because of the time and trauma, she didn't remember some of the specific details. And people use that to relentlessly attack other women who come forward. He spoke about acts that he had seen in pornographic films involving such matters as women having sex with animals and films showing group sex or rape scenes. This is a clip from the 1991 hearing of Anita Hill, the law professor who accused then-Supreme Court nominee Clarence Thomas of sexually harassing her while working as her supervisor. Over the course of three days, Hill was bombarded with questions meant to highlight inconsistencies in her story. You have added during the course of your testimony today two new witnesses. When you talked to the FBI, there was one witness. The witness did not say anything to the FBI about the described size of his penis. The goal of these questions wasn't to prove Thomas was innocent. It was to prove that Hill's memory was faulty. Is there a contagious credibility gap? Yeah, this was such a painful episode for so many survivors, for so many women. And of course, there are many men who also believe that was a a credible and powerful account. But 
there were quite a few women I spoke to for the book who described Christine Blasey Ford, Dr. Blasey Ford's testimony as being the impetus for their own decision to come forward. You might think it would be the opposite. And certainly for many victims, there is a silencing effect when you see someone just get savaged, right? Someone who relates their assault or their harassment, and then they're taken down and they're discredited in the court of public opinion. That's what I call the anticipated credibility discount. And it keeps, as we know, so many victims from ever disclosing their abuse, because who wants that? Who wants to be discounted, have their credibility discounted in that way? It's really, really hard. At the same time, when someone like Dr. Ford comes forward and speaks her truth, I think it can galvanize so many people. And this is what we've seen in this Me Too era. We've seen the stories come pouring out because there is solidarity and there is a sense that the more we can put these stories into circulation, the the greater the likelihood that we're going to change the way they are heard and how they're acted upon. collective empowerment of women. When people started to study feminism uh, and women empowerment, there were no textbooks. And I feel like the oppression of women is really so old that we, it's almost like the oldest form of subjugation. And of course, not talking about comparative suffering. It's so old that it seems to be natural. So it also hides from us any historical memory of a time when women were not subordinated to two men. And when you think about that and you think about where we've come and you mentioned the Me Too movement, have we made any progress? It's been almost four years now since Me Too became a global movement building on Tarana Burke's work. Has the law been able to adapt at all? Yes, I am going to cautiously say yes, that there's been progress. There's been some progress within the law We saw a quick flurry of legislative activity, especially around non-disclosure agreements, uh, which were a big part of the the Weinstein story. And so certain states um, started to reform the ways that they approached NDAs. Some states made adjustments to their sexual harassment laws, their state sexual harassment laws. That was an improvement. But then law reform sort of stalled. And we um, may see some of that renewed, but I also wonder about the cultural front and whether we've seen the kind of cultural progress that we would have expected or or hoped for when this this all got touched off in the, the fall of 2017. When you see organizations like Time's Up, who has done obviously so much good, take hits for certain things that they've done. And mind you, they've done some things that are are not great. So yesterday, the leader of Time's Up, 
the Me Too era organization founded by Hollywood women to fight sexual harassment, she resigned. Roberta Kaplan stepped down as chair of the group's board of directors. Her resignation follows revelations that she helped advise Governor Cuomo's office in an effort to discredit at least one of his accusers. How do we just allow for those growing pains and not burn the whole thing down? It seems like such a like going against our own best interest when as a pub, women, men try to take down an organization like Time's Up, who is literally fighting for exactly this. What are your thoughts on it? This is such a hard one. And it's so sad. I think that for anyone who cares deeply about these issues to, to kind of watch the crossfire is hard. You know that the women who founded Time's Up and who've been deeply involved in its work do care about these issues and made mistakes along the way in some instances, but also did some good. And I guess the question is, can an organization like Time's Up that has so much power, potentially, can it re reorient? It's just interesting to me because as someone who is a founding member of Time's Up and I'm on the board, I don't know any organization that does what they do where they go into businesses and they help businesses restructure. And I feel like there's so much more that Time's Up does that um, that is just not being talked about. And it's it's interesting because it's coming from both sides. And so I'm I'm forced to think about this, how we weaponize even these organizations when they fall or when they have missteps and how the patriarchy sort of takes advantage of that to uh, discredit the entire movement, but also how misogyny can sometimes impact how women look at these organizations and want to take down the movement. So how do we fix it? Where do we go from here? Yeah, and I think that what you just described is something really important to identify because we can't change any of this. We can't start to resist our, say, misogynistic impulses or our discomfort with powerful women. The idea that an organization that was founded by women and run by women and focused on women's issues, that that can be unsettling to many people. And that, again, is when it's aimed at disrupting patriarchal structures, people have a deep investment in those structures and you're going to find you're going to find resistance. And so to be able to parse out legitimate criticisms and at the same time start to see these pernicious influences and put it all into the mix, I think that we have to be really clear eyed. Right. And also, it's tricky because the organization is usually the way we decipher whether or not it's being clear eyed. I think that businesses, the entertainment industry for sure, looked at Time's Up and the protocol that they've set forth, things like intimacy coordinators on set and all of those things that they've done that are huge advancements for women. And I think people just look at it and just instead of seeing it as progress, they see it as a way to chip away uh, at our power. And that's terrifying. Yes. And it is also the case that women are often held to impossible standards. Right. Exactly. Like it shouldn't be up to 
us to either say, I'm going to give Time's Up a, a second chance or not. That shouldn't fall on us. It's really hard. And it is so, it is at the end of the day, I think when you have these kinds of conflicts that involve people who really are aiming for so many of the same goals, it can feel self-destructive. And there are plenty of forces, we're talking about the credibility complex, that are going to do that work for us. That are going to jump on it and politicize it or use it to use that criticism to their own advantage. Where do we go from here? Where do we go? We are like, what is it? Is it one step forward and two steps back? Or are we going two steps forward and one step back? We are better off than we were before victims, survivors felt like telling their stories might lead to some good. I think that there are more stories being told because there's more empowerment and there's more hope. We're at a historic tipping point for women. In October 2017, the hashtag MeToo spread across the globe. What began as a Hollywood sexual assault scandal sparked a public reckoning around the world. Thousands of women are using two words on social media to identify themselves as survivors of sexual harassment and assault. A watershed moment in our... New laws have been passed and powerful men have been forced to step down... sorry for the damage that Oxfam has done. ...face arrest and conviction. And all of that is supremely important. And at the same time, it's not enough if it's not enough for the stories to be out there, if there's not accountability, if there's not some measure of justice, if these stories aren't leading to validation, vindication, and some measure, again, of justice. And so I think that's the next maybe stage in this process of evolution, right? That's maybe a way to look at this trajectory and to say, this is where we've come and this is where we need to go. So, I mean, do you think that we can get it fixed when the people in charge of changing the laws are very often the same people who benefit from the entrenched power structure. In the end, there there are enough people who are good and who are willing to, again, to do better, to be educated, to think about their own complicity in some of this. I mean, this is hard. This is hard work because it's not just about ferreting out bad apples. That's hard enough. (laughs) But what we're talking about now is nothing short of cultural transformation. And that requires you know, well-intentioned people to take responsibility for the ways in which we all support these flawed, patriarchal, racist structures. And and is your thought that we need federal law to create a national standard or can states go at it alone? Are there some states that are doing better than others? Yeah, there are some states doing better than others. And I think I'd want to see work on all fronts. I'd want to see federal legislation. I want to see states. I want to see municipalities. And I also want to acknowledge that this has to go hand in hand with work outside the law, that the law isn't the perfect fix. The law is enforced by people who are of this culture, who drink the water and breathe the air. And so unless and until we have that kind of shift in our collective mentality around these kinds of 
allegations and the ways that we respond to them and the way that we do credibility assessment. The laws on the books can only go so far. And my last question for you is something that I ask all of my guests. What gives you hope? I am hopeful because in the past few years, I feel that there has been greater receptivity to these kinds of allegations. I feel like there's more willingness to think about biases that we hold unwittingly, um, to think of ourselves as part of structures that may be affecting us in ways we wouldn't choose. And so I think that the collective conversation has moved in a positive direction and opens up space for the kind of work that I think we have ahead of us. Deborah Turkheimer, you give me hope. Thank you for all you do and for being a part of the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. It's been such a thrill to talk to you, Alyssa. And thank you for all of the work that you've done and continue to do. I went through the reporting process over a year after my assault and actually found the process of reporting to be more traumatic than the assault itself. I felt like I wasn't believed. The policeman told me there was two sides to every story and he handed me a brochure on couples counseling. With sexual assault, the person on trial is often the survivor to see if people believe them that a crime actually occurred. And what people then ask is not who did it, but are you sure that it happened? For a lot of survivors, there's a big fear that you won't be believed. Only 6% of assaults reported to the police end with the assailant spending a single day in prison. And that's not because survivors don't know their assailant. 85% of college survivors know their assailant. It's really that it's hard to meet the standard of evidence that we need in sexual assault cases to make a conviction. Believe women. This shouldn't be hard. When we've seen over and over and over again the abuses women face in workplaces, in relationships, in government, in entertainment, even for just existing in the world, it should be easy to start from a place of assuming women are telling the truth. I talk about this in my book. It doesn't mean that we instantly believe every detail of every word that comes out of someone's mouth just because she's a woman, but it does believe that we can't start from a place of disbelief. That's especially true in the law and another reason why we need the Equal Rights Amendment. Our criminal law sets a high standard for guilt and conviction, and that's a good thing. But the institutions of that law can't be so bent toward men, so twisted to support the powerful, that it makes it nearly impossible for women to be taken seriously. Equal rights under the law means equal access to the law. And so we keep fighting. It's exhausting. I'm sure you're exhausted, too. I'm fucking exhausted. But I'll never give up. I'll never stop using my voice. I'll never be satisfied with a power structure that leaves women behind. And I know you won't either. So thank you so much for fighting together with me and millions and millions of people who were abused. The world will be better because of your work. 
Sorry Not Sorry is executive produced by Alyssa Milano. That's me. Our producer is Ben Jackson. Audio editing and engineering by Maciej Lewandowski. And music by Josh Cook, Alicia Eagle, and Milo Bugliari. Don't forget to rate, review, and spread the word. Sorry. Not sorry.